I want you to turn to your neighbor and, and, and say, the, I need you to say the whole thing, so just stay with me on this, right? Just say, we have great pastors. Yeah. But they're only great because of us and because of God. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Karen, thank you so much. Doug, for the video. All you guys involved. Um, I, I'm trying to get over the song we just sang. I, I just love that song. I just, uh, I, I just, holy, holy, holy. Man, I just can't believe it. I think sometimes we forget how awesome is God. We've been going through a series on the book of David, and we are in our third sermon on this, and today's sermon is entitled Uncommon Friendship. Uncommon Friendship. I believe, just my observation, that the biggest threat facing men today and I believe it's becoming even more so for women, although not as much, isn't cancer or heart disease. It's not job loss or financial crisis. I believe the greatest threat facing men today is loneliness. I wonder how many friends you have. If I were to ask you how many friends, I mean, I mean like close ones. I'm not talking about Facebook. I looked on Facebook and, and I noticed I had 1,656 friends. I don't know who these people are. If you ever, no seriously, have you ever gone through the list and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. wait, who's that? I have no idea who that is. But they're my friend. And I think things like Facebook have taken away something important about friendship that is causing a lot of people to be lonely. Most men have no real close friends. I ask people all the time, do you have any close friends? Well, what do you mean by close? <laughs> if you're asking me that question, you don't have any close friends. And the reality is, it's not necessarily always your fault. I think it's the culture that we live in. To be close friends, men need to be transparent. To be close friends, men need to be compassionate, have empathy, and sometimes sacrifice their own self-interest to be close friends. Now, some of you women out there are thinking, okay, so this sermon's going to be about men and their friendship. Yes. But boy, if I, there's ever a time that I'm going to need you girls to say amen to that, this is it right here. Because there is an intimacy that you guys experience that guys in this culture struggle with. See, because real men in this culture are supposed to be tough. Right? They're not supposed to do those things I just mentioned. They're supposed to be self-interested. 
They're supposed to be competitive. They're supposed to be non-emotional. They're supposed to be strong. Never let anybody know what their insecurities are. They're supposed to deal with all the problems without asking any help, without asking for any directions. That's not what men do in this culture. And all of this rugged individualism has caused us to not experience the depth of friendship that all of us should have. I want to give you a little bit of an intimate personal insight in my life. Some of you have heard me talk about this. Many of you know I grew up as a child in Italy, but I had moved there when I was three years old, so immediately I was labeled as the Americano. I was, I was very, very, very skinny in those days. Don't let that surprise you. You've seen pictures. And so they called me spaghetti legs. My dad wasn't with me, and so there was this part of me that was very insecure. There was this part of me that was missing something. I was not very athletic. And then when I moved to the States as a 10-year-old boy, I went to a parochial school, and the kids were extremely cruel to me. They made fun of me because now I was the Italiano. I was the, the guinea, the wop, the foreigner. I looked differently. I spoke differently. And they could not understand me, and I could not understand the language, but I could understand the sneering. There is something about being ridiculed that any language you can understand that, can't you? I had a friend by the name of Ricky Baglioni. He spoke partly Italian. And the poor guy was assigned to me to be my translator. And so all the insults I got, he got. And half of the things he never translated to me. There was a guy there by the name of John the Giacomo. You would think, right? With a name like the Giacomo, Italian descent, he'd be nice, but no. He was like the guy in that school that everybody looked up to. He was particularly mean-spirited. But when you are longing for friendship, you get kind of gullible, don't you? And I noticed something that was different about the boys in a parochial school or an American school that was totally different than the boys in the school that I went to in Italy, and that is they had these things called baseball cards. Baseball cards. Have you ever heard of them? And I got to tell you, man, I, I decided to take every penny I had. I broke the piggy bank, and I went and bought baseball cards so that I could be in with them. Well, some of these guys realized, oh, wow, check out some of the cards that Sergio has. Nice. And they would play this game. And I don't know if you ever played this game. Maybe this is like a long time ago. But we would sit on the sidewalk, and they would put the cards down, and they would put one or two cards down, and then they would like go like this. And if the card would actually flip over you would win those cards. And I'm like, I can do that, you know? And so now I'm doing that, and, and I'm practicing, and I come in, and John says, hey, how about playing baseball cards with me? I forgot what they even called it, probably because I didn't understand it. I'm like, sure, why not, you know? And, and there were so many times that I thought I won, but I didn't. I began to realize that this game had ever-changing rules. And because I couldn't speak the language, I didn't know what the rules were. 
And I lost all my cards. I'll never forget that. And as a young boy, I got into fights. That I knew how to do. But it didn't make me popular. It actually made me even more alienated. And I felt this deep sense of loneliness and this deep sense of insignificance. And in high school, I buried myself in rock and roll, playing the drums and substance abuse. And it was there, believe it or not, that I began to make some friends. So why not? But I always had this deep, intense loneliness inside of me. And I'll be very honest with you, and I know this is going to sound like the pastor thing to say, but trust me, I, I, this is, I, I, I'm just being totally honest with you. It wasn't until I found Jesus Christ that I began to realize what a true friend is. Not only in Jesus, but then I began to meet Christians and understand what they were like and, and, and just... Uh, uh, it was just unbelievable to see the, the connection. It kind of changed me. There was some amazing healing that had happened in my life. I had to learn to trust because I had learned not to trust for a long time. And those closest to me, and some of you are here in this room, two of my best friends are in this room right now. One is my wife, Nancy. And uh, you can tell a good friend when they know everything about you and they still love you. And she's seen me go up and down, across, sideways. And still loves me. And most of you know, many of you know, that Spencer Hannah is one of my very closest friends. We've We've done so much together. Uh, we were thrown together at this academy, and uh, we were working together, and there were times when we had to take students uh, to New York City, which was two and a half hours away, and of course, I was from there. He wasn't from there, and so he'd say, how do I get there? And I'd be like, how about if I come with you? And we'd be there until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning to tell this one student that we were taking her home. We couldn't tell her why, but it was because her brother had just been killed. And just, just those kinds of experiences begin to throw you into, into stuff that just, they force you to get close. And here's this guy who grew up in a small town in Ohio. Here's this guy from Italy who grew up in Italy, Naples, and New York. I mean, it's a, you, you, a, a Roman Catholic, Seventh-day Adventist. You know, I mean, like you couldn't, you couldn't have any more different types of people Learned how to play basketball and football and all those great sports. All I knew how to do was play soccer. That was it. And somehow God put us together. And I know that there is nothing that I would ask of Spencer, and I believe Spencer feels the same way about me, uh, that he would say no to. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I'm, I feel really, 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 really lucky to have that kind of friend. I have a few like that, believe it or not. That is, that's because of my experience as a young boy. Those who are closest to me, people like Spencer, people like Nancy, people like my friend Dave, 
They will tell you that from time to time, those ugly scars of insecurities keep popping up. They surface. And why they're my best friends is because they know how to tenderly bandage them. They will also tell you that my definition and demonstration of friendship is anything but superficial. When you become my friend, you are my friend forever. And I love you. It's a wonderful thing. But I meet people every day who are in bondage to image or in bondage to the culture that they've been raised in and they have no idea what it means to have close friendships. And I just, my heart goes out to you. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And I got to tell you, those closest to us, those closest to you, sharpen or dull you. In fact, I would say to you that a person's potential is determined by those closest to him. Do you believe that? I want you to think that through again. I want to say it again. A person's potential is determined by those closest to him or her. David. What made David such a great man? Well, we know that he had a heart for God. We know that he was obviously talented, a skillful musician, prolific songwriter, courageous warrior. We just heard about him knocking down the big giants just last week, right? Single-handedly defeating armies. So much so that people were beginning to sing. Saul kills his uh, uh, thousands, and, 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 and David kills his tens of thousands. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Maybe I'm exaggerating the numbers, but, you know, so were they. <laughs> he was an humble visionary. He had a lot going for him. But David's greatest accomplishment was his ability to surround himself with awesome, loyal friends. Did you notice that about David? I mean, David was just great at it. Scripture speaks of David's mighty men. Who were these guys? Well, these were misfits inspired by David's confidence in them. Misfits that felt safe with him. He understood the power of acceptance and affirmation. And I believe one of the greatest challenges today in our world, within our churches, is that we do not affirm each other enough. And that is why when we experience what we experienced here today, it, it, it just, I, and I, could, I know that I could speak for for, for Fred and for Terrence, it's just, we, we're speechless. We don't know. It's just, it's, it's uncommon. And on that note, I want to say, <laughs> I want to welcome another friend of mine that's here, and his name is Mark, and his wife Judy, and his son Bryson. Mark is my pastor. He's the pastor's pastors, and he's here. And one of the things that I love about Mark is that, and this is the first time I've ever experienced it. I wanted to tell you straight out. First thing, time I've ever experienced this with a, with a ministerial director. He's my friend. He, he emails me Thursday. He says, hey, I'm coming to your church. Oh, okay. 
called him last night. I'm like, okay, look, uh, we're going to do this for food. And, you know, this, uh, why, why, why aren't you coming? He goes, oh, I just want to be there. I'm thinking maybe, maybe he should be preaching. I don't, I don't know. You know, he's my pastor, right? You know? I, no, I just want to come and enjoy. I just wanna, I'm going to be there. How cool is that? Right? But if we don't appreciate that, it goes away. Isn't that true? We have got to be very intentional about appreciating each other. David learned that to have good friends, one must be a good friend. And the most remarkable demonstration of deep, extraordinary friendship that David had is in his friendship with his nemesis son, Jonathan. They shared the kind of friendship that the Bible describes as patient. The kind of friendship that did not envy. The kind of friendship that did not boast. The kind of friendship that was not proud, was not rude, was not self-seeking, kept no records of wrongdoing. Do you know what I'm talking about? See, that's friendship. The kind of friendship that did not delight in evil but rejoiced with the truth. The friendship that was always, always protected, always trusted, always hoped, always persevered. Friendship that never failed. And their friendship was so deep and was so amazing that we as Americans, I want to be honest with you, we read about that kind of friendship and we wonder, was there more to that friendship? But I think it's a sad commentary when we reduce this awesome friendship that Jonathan and David have to some kind of alternate lifestyle. That is not at all. There is no indication of that at all. But we as Americans read that. We're going to read some things. You're going to be like, wow, that's weird. It's only weird to us because we don't understand what it means. To have that kind of friendship. Bud was up here having prayer and he comes over to greet me and he puts out his hand. I go, no way. And I just give him a big, why? Like, what is it with us, right? With the, you know, I, I knew a guy that would just, you, don't, you didn't touch him, man. No way. I remember, I, remember it was, I was brand new at this church and I, I put out my hand. I go, hi, I'm Sergio. And he goes, hi. And he, you could tell, he's like, like, come on, give me a big hug. He goes, no, no, I don't hug. I don't hug. It's like, well, why not? He goes, I'm Pennsylvania Dutch. I don't hug. I go, well, I'm from the kingdom of heaven, so I hug. That's <laughs> what I do, you know? <laughs> I'm a citizen of the heavenly We're going to hug in heaven. Get used to it here. <laughs> so what does it take to have the kind of friendship this uncommon friendship, this, this, that's characteristics. What are the characteristics of an uncommon friendship? So we're going to look at some of these, all right? Six of these. Just because I didn't want five and I didn't want seven, I just said six. I'm sure there's more, but we're going with six. So Jonathan just took down this big giant. And everybody's singing his praises. And he's thinking, I've arrived. I've been anointed over my brothers. I get to play the harp in the palace. 
This is a shepherd boy. This is a shepherd boy in a palace. He probably still smells like sheep in a palace. You just need to think that through a little bit. A shepherd boy. Have you ever been in somebody's house and you were like, wow, I better not touch anything? Right? You touch it, you pay for it kind of a thing, right? I mean, here's, here's David in this palace. And in that palace, he realizes that Goliath was not the enemy. Goliath was a enemy or an enemy, but he wasn't the enemy. The enemy ultimately turns out to be the one who is sitting on the throne that David needs to sit on one day. And he's realizing it's not over just because I killed this giant. Have you ever felt that way? You killed some giants and you thought, okay, this is good. I've, I've, I've arrived. No, you haven't. There are times when we are in the palace and God allows that for us. And that is, I just love that. I love the fact that destiny, God's destiny, had brought the shepherd boy to this palace. But let's be honest. David had a long way to go. In fact, he's only about halfway through at this time in, in history of Saul's reign. It's a long time. So, we're just going to skip around some verses here. Let's see if I can... Oh, wonderful. It works. I love it. And I'm just going to read it from my Bible. And here we go. The first one is spirit-filled connection that Jonathan and David had. Because you see, Jonathan had been raised in the palace. Jonathan knows the palace. Jonathan understands the palace. And David does not. And so Jonathan and David begin to be friends. Jonathan admires David for what he's doing. Jonathan is the son of the king. And it says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved them as himself. See, some of you guys are uncomfortable with that word love. Sometimes I will be on the phone with you, and I'd be like, all right, man, I love you, bro. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I know what's going on. You're uncomfortable. That's okay. I know you still love me. It's just hard to say it. Did he just say, I love you? I've made mistakes sometimes texting, you know. I always try to end my text with my wife going, I love you, honey. I've done that. No, I'm sorry for that. If you're a guy and I've texted, I love you, honey, I I didn't mean that at all. (laughs) But I do love you. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant, catch this, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan, this is how he signifies the covenant. It says he took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And he's saying, man, look, I, I, I am just want you to know that we are equal here in this house. I am the son of the king, but you and I, I, you can wear my royal robes. I love the way the King James Version, it's 
puts it, it's, it's a little more vivid. It's got a, a better mental image. It says, the soul of Jonathan was knit together with the soul of David. Did you catch that? The soul of Jonathan was knit together by the master artist with the soul of Jonathan. In other words, this was a God thing. That word kashar in Hebrew means connected. They were connected together. So God says, I'm going to connect you guys together. You are going to be friends for eternity. You guys, I'm, I'm doing this. It's a wonderful thing. It is a moment of majesty that God is doing right now. This is not what some people have said it is. No, this is a deep friendship. And that word connected is important because, let me just say something to you. The very first quality is trust. Write it down if you have something to write it down on. Trust. You want to have a great friendship, you must trust. And trust begets trust. This was a moment where Jonathan said, look, I am going to just trust you totally. Because he recognizes that David, this shepherd boy, is a trusting individual and trustful individual. Trust, don't miss this, is the glue of any relationship. Isn't that true? The moment trust goes away, your relationship goes away. Husbands and wives, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? If trust is betrayed, the relationship becomes unglued. If you've been on a team and there is no trust, the team falls apart. Trust is the glue. That's what it meant when it says that God connected these two, knit them together. And it was a spiritual knitting. It was their souls were knitted. Isn't that awesome? This is not physical. This is spiritual. Can some woman say amen out there? So you must be willing to lay down your robe and your sword. I think one of the greatest challenges that we have as men, and maybe, maybe even more so within a church setting, is that we are very guarded. Looked into Sabbath school this morning. There was Luke holding the sword that I have in my office. I'm like, what is up with that? And I was like, I'm just playing with it, you know. And I thought, boy, that's so amazing, you know, because I know you're a transparent kind of a guy. But it's so true about us, right? You know, we just we want to keep the sword by our side and, you know, just don't come so close now. But we need to learn to trust each other, amen? I love our men's ministry, by the way, tomorrow morning, guys, breakfast, 9 o'clock. I love, our, we're going to do some fun stuff tomorrow morning, by the way. I can't tell you because it's a surprise, but we're going to do some, something really fun. But let me just tell you something right now. There is just something about coming together as men and, and, and developing that kind of friendship, isn't there? To, to, to grow that kind of of, of, of trust to let down our guard once a month. We're starting with just once a month. 
Because we, we know it takes time to build up to it. But we have plans, just so you know. So here are these two. They are kindred spirits, equally impulsive, equally brave, equally convinced that God was behind Israel, both leaders, both secure, secure enough to love, to trust, and to be vulnerable. Now, the second one is found a little later, and I call it unshakable loyalty. Unshakable loyalty. So first, spirit-filled connection, then unshakable loyalty. Unshakable loyalty. In chapter 19, beginning with verse 1, it says, Saul told his son Jonathan and all of the attendants to kill David. So at this point, remember that crazy spirit he was having before? He's starting to affect him mentally big time. And he wants to kill David. But Jonathan, the son Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. I think that's what I heard him say. I could be wrong, but that's what I heard him say. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, the father, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. He has not wronged I don't know what is going on here, Dad. I don't know what you ate last night. I don't know what's going on. But this is a guy that's been loyal. He killed the giant. You, you, you want to kill him. Remember that, Dad? See, there's something about a son that wants to believe in his dad. Isn't that true? I mean, that's where he learns friendship from at the beginning. But now he's being so totally confused by Saul's attitude. He's like, he, does, he doesn't understand what's going on. And there's at some point, and I don't know where it is, but at some point, and we're going to see it here, there's this kind of threshold that he crosses where he realizes, Dad's not Dad anymore. Something has happened to Dad. And I can't tell you how difficult that is. I remember when I was decided to be baptized in Seventh-day Adventist Church. This was like the worst betrayal that I could ever do to my mom and dad. I mean, I did some bad things as a kid, and my dad was very loving and forgiving and helped me through it. And, but boy, when he found out I was being baptized, I think he was worried more about mom, right? My mom said to me, you get baptized, you do not step foot in this house again, period. That's it. But I did. And I did. But my mom was in bed for two weeks. She was, there was nothing wrong with her. She said, this is just protest. You know what I'm talking about? This is, this is absolute, total, manipulative protest. Like as if I could be unbaptized. I don't know. And after time, they, they not only learned to accept it, but they appreciated the fact that my life was changing because of what Jesus did. Isn't that cool? So there's this wonderful loyalty. Do you have friends that are loyal to you? Do you have friends that, that just kind of stick up for you? I love that. 
We see it again uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Now, this is an interesting moment here. Uh, this is what I call unrestricted transparency. Say that with me. Unrestricted transparency. So say it again. Because if I have to, you have to. Come on. Unrestricted transparency. Then David fled because it was getting really bad. David was on the run. Next week, come and hear about David on the run. But David's on the run now because things are getting bad. He knows that Saul wants to kill him. David's on the run from uh, fled from Naioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? I mean, what is my crime? I, how have I wronged your father? He, he's trying to take my life. Now catch this moment because this is important. It says here, never, Jonathan replied. He still can't believe that it's true. No way, that can't be true. Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. Please don't say it's so. This cannot be. But David, but David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet, as surely as the Lord lives... And as you live, there is only one step between me and death. Can I tell you something? This is so important. This unrestricted transparency, this moment where we decide to get totally vulnerable, this moment when everybody's watching, even though nobody's watching, but everybody's watching, this moment when you say, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be very transparent about this. David could have gotten killed for what he was saying about Jonathan's dad. I mean, this is the king, for goodness sake, right? And David's like, you know, this, I know he wants to kill. And John is trying to say, no, but you know what? It's okay. I'm going to give you permission to be transparent with me. I'm, going to be, I'm, I'm even going to give you permission to differ with me. Have you ever had a difference of opinion with a good friend? You should talk to Spencer about differences of opinion that we've had at times. <laughs> Often over rook rules, but you know. Or, or talk to Nancy, my wife, about the differences of opinion that we've had. I mean, it's just amazing, right? But here's the thing. The bonds of uncommon friendship are deeper than the width of their differences. The bonds of uncommon friendship are deeper than the width of our differences. Because it's uncommon friendship, right? There's this great story about uh, Jesse Owens. In 1936, the Olympics. 1936, the Olympics in Germany. Do the math, 1936, the Olympics in Germany. And he seemed sure to win the long jump. And the year before, he had jumped 26 feet 8 and a quarter inches, a record that would stand 25 years later. And the story says that as he walked to the long jump pit, however, Owen kind of felt a little bit of, of insecurity. He saw this tall, 
blonde, blue-eyed German taking the jumps. 26, no problem. And he, and he knows about the feelings that Germany has about them having the Aryan nation mentality, that, that the Aryan white people are better, the Aryan white people are stronger. This, now, this guy has to prove this. Owen felt nervous. And at this point, this tall German introduced himself as Lutz Long. And he looks over to Jesse Owen and he says, you should be able to qualify with your eyes closed. That's how good you are. Referring to the two previous jumps. However, he kept getting called for faults because they were saying that he was crossing the line. Crossing the line. Even though sometimes he wasn't. So Lutz goes to him and says, hey, look, I got an idea. It's up to you. But I would move that line about a foot and a half back. That way, you can't, you know, because you, you, all you need is about eight feet to qualify. So just, just go ahead and jump. You could do that easily. And Jesse Owen took his advice. And he was able to qualify. In the finals, Owens set an Olympic record and earned the second of four gold medals. And the first person to congratulate him was Lutz Long. How cool is that? I want to read to you what he says, because Lutz Long did this in view of Adolf Hitler. Owen later writes, because he, he never saw Long again, who apparently was killed in World War II as a soldier, yeah. He later writes, you can melt down all the medals and cups I have, and they wouldn't be a, platen, a plating on the 24-carat friendship I felt with Lutz Long. How cool is that, huh? Want to know why? Because the bonds of uncommon friendships are deeper than the width of our differences. That's why. All right. How are we doing? Next one was steadfast advocacy. There's nothing like a friend who just defends you. This is found in chapter 20, beginning with verse 30. It says, Saul's anger fled up at Jonathan. See, they were having this discussion. Jonathan is still trying to defend David, but Saul is just is, is losing it. He no longer has him as the Prozac to play the harp anymore, so now he's just totally gone, right? He's just, his mind is just crazy. Saul's anger fla flared at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I wanted to say it that way so that you can get the intensity of it. Because there's, there's nothing colorful in here, I don't think. Either that or the author decided not to include it. But it doesn't sound very nice, does it? You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you 
nor your kingdom will be established. Are you getting what he's saying? As long as David is alive, you or your kingdom, they will not be established. Don't you understand? You're my son. You're next in line. You're going to be the next king. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. And Jonathan says, why? Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled the spear at him to kill him. What? I think this was the moment, don't you? And then Jonathan knew that his father's intended, intended to kill David. And so Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On the second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. And now comes you know tomorrow I don't know how many of you know this tomorrow is, is, is called Reformation Sunday. Did you know that? Reformation Sunday. 500, 500 years on Tuesday actually that it marks 500 years from the day that Luther put up the, uh, yeah, 95 Theses. Nailed it to a piece of wood, to the door. You know, I don't know if you know this, but Luther had a great friend. Every people, everybody that's done something great has great friends behind them. Isn't that true? And uh, let, me, let me read you. His name was uh, Philip Melanchthon. This is what he writes on the death of his friend Luther. He says, God has always preserved a portion of his servants upon the earth. And now through Martin Luther, a more splendid period of light and truth has appeared. How cool is that? Luther, speaking of Melanchthon, says these words. If it pleases Christ, Melanchthon will make many Martins, like Martin Luther's. And a most powerful enemy of scholastic theology, for he knows their folly and the rock of Christ as well. As a man of might, he will prove his ability. With these words that they wrote to each other, Philip and Martin described one another in a way that is so rare, if you think about it, from those days. Though there were many important figures in the history of the Lutheran Reformation and many people that try to help, they, history records no greater friendship than the friendship of these two guys as they came together to make a huge difference in the Reformation. So tomorrow, or Tuesday, better for us anyway, Tuesday, when you think about the 500 years, think about not just Martin Luther, but think also about Melanchthon, Philip. Fair enough? Because that is a great, great, wonderful way of understanding the friendship that God wants for us. All right, so the next one is demonstrative support. This is number five. We're almost done. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 41. This is the verse that a lot of people totally misunderstand. This is uh, da Jonathan trying to warn David. And after the boy had gone, he had this boy chasing arrows, and there was, a, there was kind of the sign for David to know that Jonathan was coming. 
David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times. David is recognizing Jonathan as royalty by doing this. And it says, with his face to the ground, they kissed, then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Demonstrative support. Have you ever embraced somebody and said, it's okay? Have you ever done that? See, there are men in this room right now that need a hug. There are men in this room right now that are starving and are lonely. I'm going to tell you that. This is a definite truth right now. And you have the power to befriend somebody and to support them demonstratively. You know what I mean by that? It's like, just, it's okay. Maybe kissing, not yet. You know, we'll get to that. But, you know, in Italy, in Italy, that, that's not weird at all. You go to Italy and you cross the street, it is not unusual to see two guys grab each other's hand and walk across the street together. And if you're American, you're going, that's weird. But you know what it is? It's called protection, dude. Have you ever seen those guys drive in Italy? I'm, I'm being serious. I mean, it's like, whoa, come on, let's go. And then, then they get to the other side, like, okay, later, thank you. You know, that's what it is. It's just culture. All right. Well, at this point, David is really on the run, and there's one more, and that's this one here. This one blows my mind right here. It's found in chapter 23. I call this selflessness. Just selflessness. Catch this. Do not miss this. It says, when David was at Horish, the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David. He risked his life. He goes to David and, uh, at Orish and helped them find strength. Did you catch that? Help them find strength. Come on, David. It's going to be all right. Don't forget, you're the anointed. I know you're running, and I know you're sad, and I know things are going bad, but trust me on this. You're the anointed. And then he does this. Catch this. This is the guy who is second in command. This is the guy that's going to be the next king, right? Listen to what it says. Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king of Israel. And I will be what? Second to you. You will be king in Israel, and I will be second to you. Can you imagine the level of selflessness that Jonathan had to have? I mean, I got to tell you right now, that, that's, just, just, that's Christ inside of you. These echo the words later on from a great, great passage from John the Baptist, who probably was named after Jonathan. And he says the words about Jesus. Do you remember the words? He must increase and I must decrease. Come on, say it with me. He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to read you the words of Jesus. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. 
Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love had no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. And you are my friends. Did you know that? Jesus is your friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I've made known to you, just like Jonathan was doing with David. You're going to know everything. We're friends. And some of you, maybe, maybe you don't have a friend. Not every Jesse has a Lutz. Not every Martin has a Philip. Not every Frodo has a Sam. Not every Han has a Chewy. Not every Patrick has a SpongeBob. Not every Shrek has a donkey. But all of us, all of us have Jesus Christ. Amen? And he could teach us to have that kind of love. He could teach us to be that kind of friend. The uncommon friend that all of us are not only looking for, but we desire. You want that friend? Be that friend. He must increase. And I must decrease.